0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Shark Bites, where we look at tech leadership in the public sector. I'm Alan Shark, Executive Director of CompTIA's Public Technology Institute, better known as PTI. We present new episodes posted every other Wednesday, so please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a topic of interest. And it's hard to say that we now have 75 episodes that you can explore. Boy, time goes by fast. So wherever you get your podcasts, Uh, or simply go to sharkbites.net. In this episode, we'll have a conversation with Dr. David Bray. David, welcome. Great to be here with you, Alan. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, As I look at your background, you have more than 20 20 years um, working with personal computers and later the internet uh, when it was just beginning, before it was even commercially available uh, and as I read your bio in the early 1980s, your grandfather bought each of the grandchildren an IBM PC. And I want to come back to that. You are now a distinguished fellow at the Bipartisan Atlantic Council. Uh, you've been named a distinguished fellow at the Bipartisan Stimson Center with a focus on how data and tech are having global impacts on communities. You have a demonstrated track record of service to the U.S. during times of turbulence and crisis. Including responding to the events of 911 and anthrax in 2021, um, with the CDI's bioterrorism preparedness and response program, uh, you spend time in Afghanistan. The list goes on and on. And when you were still young, and you still are, the Business Insider actually named you as one of the top 24 Americans who are changing the world. Um, this is an amazing list, and and this is just a part of it. So we are very excited to have you on the program. Well, again, it's great to be here with you, Alan, and
1: also thanks for everything you do. You also similarly have an impressive background, and it's really good to sort of talk about how tech changes are impacting our nation and our world.
0: Yeah, and how we live, everything that we do. So we were uh, at an event not too long ago, and you gave a talk about information, misinformation, which is a topic I do want to get to. But first, we always start the podcast with getting a sense of how you got involved in tech, like what was it and what age? Did this spark your interest and you say, either I want to change the world or I want something more than a rector set? Uh, and <laughs> you know, I had a Remco electric set, you know, I would later progress to a K Pro 2. And mm-hmm. I was excited to have a single density floppy drive. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, doing all these codes to underline a word or italicize a word on a screen that was black with green letters. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> um, I think we've had similar, we're different ages, but we've had similar interests. So how did you get your start?
1: Uh, so again, you, you sort of hit on it. My, my grandfather uh, was pressing enough that he got, uh, he had four four sons, one of which was my father, and he got each of them a uh, computer in the 80s. It was an IBM PC junior with a whopping at the time, I think 64 kilobytes of RAM. Uh, and like you said, uh, five and a quarter floppy disk, um, single density. And uh, I, I came from a family that my father was a Methodist minister, my mom was a school teacher um and so uh you know they they looked at the computer but they didn't really use it and I sort of took to it first to figure out how to do programming um going from basic later to C to assembly um but then also taking it apart and putting it back together again and fortunately it still worked um and so that led to science fairs I was fortunate enough to be sort of uh, on the heels of the, the the Cold War supposedly ending, but still government investment in science was still occurring. Uh, lived in a place called Newport News, Virginia, which was a shipbuilding town. And so they had a really robust science fair program. Uh, and I did a science fair project. I was interested in modeling the real world. Partly because, you know, when you have a dad who's a Methodist minister, you wonder what this world he's he's talking about. And so your rebellion, or at least my rebellion, was to uh, create computer models first of the greenhouse effect and ozone layer deterioration, and later uh, computer models of oil spills, in this case in the Chesapeake Bay, because I was from Virginia. And uh, that caught the eye of the US government through science fairs. And uh, when I was 15, I was offered a job at a place. At the time, it was called the Continuous Electron Beam Accelerator Facility, or CBAAF. It now is a much simpler name called the Jefferson Lab, uh, which allowed me to access the, 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 before it was even called the World Wide Web. It was the early days of the, the publicly facing web. Uh, and then later, also when I was 17, I got called down to the principal's office Four individuals were there uh, and said, we'd like to offer you a job. It's going to be classified. It'll involve small satellites with the Department of Defense. You won't be able to tell your parents what you're doing. I don't think I even asked how much you were going to pay me. I just said, sure. Um, And one of those people to this day, uh, Dr. William Jeffrey, he later went on to become the director of SRI, uh, Sanford Research Institute. Uh, We're still in touch. We're still friends. We still collaborate on some projects together. Um, But that was a very formative period in my life.
0: So I have to ask this question. This is a light aside have you already bought your son a, an iPad, or have you progressed right to a computer?
1: Um, so I have been looking to see if I can find an affordable equivalent of an Apple II or an IBM PC. Um, have not actually found an affordable one because I think you know that's just a great experience when it's not connected to the internet and you don't have to worry about the over complexities of modern operating systems. But I did when he turned five. He got an op- He got an iPad, but he only has three minutes of screen time. Um, but oh. it was not until he was five that he actually got, it. and that was about the age. At five was when I got it. Um, to his credit, of course, he's already trying to figure out. He hasn't taken it apart, but he's already trying to figure out how he can do certain things and get around it. Uh, so uh, uh, we will see what happens if we end up raising a hacker accidentally uh, or <laughs> intentionally. So
0: <laughs> it could be in the genes. It could be out of your control. Exactly. <laughs> so we were at a meeting uh, that you were hosting or co-hosting. And I was captivated by the uh, the way in which you and the others were categorizing the differences and the nuances between misinformation and disinformation. You know, when I look at history, you know, society's always been plagued by rumors. Mm-hmm. And I generally believe, in some cases, sadly, people are lazy mm-hmm. and they're more apt to listen to what their neighbor thinks if they think they're smarter than them. And so there's this reliance on quote unquote these experts or people who should know the right thing. And to me, and I'm sure you agree because you're nodding your head, uh, that um, society is now kind of caught up in social media as the greatest rumor mill in, in, in all of mankind because we have no idea what's really going on. We have ideas of what we would like to believe, which reinforces our beliefs, but this is a real problem in so many ways.
1: It is. And and I think you're absolutely right. So there's misinformation, which is spread of things that are incorrect, but not intentionally on the behalf of whoever is spreading it. And then there's disinformation, which is intentionally spreading information that is incorrect. And and I, I like to point out and say, you know, there's a reason why when you go to court, they ask you to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because oftentimes disinformation or even misinformation is not completely off base, it's just missing one of those elements. Uh, they may have some of the truth, but they've put something else on or they've taken some out of context and they've made it look um, in, in ways that's not appropriate. And it's not new, like you said. Um, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson hired a political hitman. Uh, to spread disinformation about John Adams wanting to go to war with France. He didn't, uh, but that was because Thomas Jefferson wanted to be president. Meanwhile, John Adams and his wife, Abigail Adams, are pinning op-eds claiming that Thomas Jefferson literally is the devil and some other not so great words. Um, And so, you know, that, that, that was then. Let's fast forward to 1890s, where there was a period of rapid technological change in the country And at the same time, we had what was called yellow journalism where uh, both Hearst and Pulitzer, the way they sold their papers were with headlines that were sensationalistic, potentially fact absence or missing facts. Um, If you remember, like there was Remember the Maine, which supposedly claimed that they had evidence that the the, the Spanish wanted to go to war with the United States probably was an accident that actually happened in the ships itself, but that actually resulted in a war. Um, And so uh, fast forward again, There's two other periods in the 20th century where we saw rapid technological change in the 20s as well as rapid technological change in the 60s and 70s that also resulted in a loss in trust, in this case of government, a loss of trust in sort of social cohesion. And so it's interesting because the 20s was radio. And the 1960s was the advent of television, and so how you looked on TV mattered in some respects more than what you actually said or did. And so here we are with social media, which is yet again a period of rapid technological change and a new medium in which, unfortunately, uh, we seem to be reverting back to a period of lack of trust in government, and a lie can get halfway around the planet before the truth can put on its sneakers.
0: And add to that, this whole notion of web Mm 2.0. You know, when I first started talking about web 2.0, it was like, what is different than supposedly web 1.0? And and the answer always was that it allowed people to post content. And that was looked upon as a good thing. Mm -hmm. And now we have content wars where somebody's content is good as anybody else's. And there is such a backlash, not just with mistrust, but also with um, this whole idea of the mistrust of experts where, and and there's been books written about this uh, and it's very, very troubling. It's like, how do we climb back to a state of trust and can technology help us or do we have to do something rather drastic?
1: That's a great question. So, um, you know, and I'll, I'll share for your listeners that, I mean, I had a, uh, I had a, Uh, misinformation, disinformation attack um, that happened in 2017 when I was serving as a nonpartisan senior executive at the uh, Federal Communications Commission, where we had a high profile proceeding, it was involving a a very controversial issue that just three years earlier had been controversial as well. We had seen three years early in 2014 the most comments ever that the FCC had received over a period of 120 days. We got 2.3 million comments, which was record breaking in all accounts. and. Even then in 2014, we had seen comments that looked like they were synthetic or artificial. Um, How they were actually generated was unclear, but we we suspected they were being submitted by web scrapers or what nowadays we would call to be bots, but they were early forms of just content submission. Um, And at the time in 2014, there was a very old system that was more than 17, 18 years old. and, And by using bots, it just tied up the system from actual humans being able to submit. Fast forward to 2017, three years later, we had at least moved the system to the cloud so we could spin up more instances if we had another surge. Um, but I had asked twice, I had asked uh, general counsel, could I run a CAPTCHA, uh, which is a computer test to see if something's actually a bot? General counsel had said no, because technically, if somebody was both um, visually impaired and hearing impaired, they may not be able to leave a comment. And that would be against the um, Administrative Procedure Act. So I couldn't detect for bots. I said, could I at least if something looked like spam. In other words, it was just submitting a comment every second. Could I block that? And I said, no, you can't do that either, because in the spam might actually be a genuine comment. And then you also don't have something. So I couldn't block for spam and I couldn't detect for bots. So we had cautioned the leadership of the FCC at the time saying, this is not a good situation. Um, and um, we, once the procedure started, Um, we we had a very little time to get ready. We started to see sort of the same comment with slight changes to the sentences and the words being submitted. So that was the first thing that said something odd is happening yet again here. Again, we then also saw people suddenly submitting comments at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and 6 a.m. Eastern time, which most people are not really awake. And even then, they're not submitting a comment every second. I mean, you and I can type fast, but not that fast. And so, you know, people say, well, what's your evidence that it's not all humans? I'm like, this, um, not to mention that you know, most humans don't do it. You know, again, it was, it was slight wording changes. What would nowadays with with what's called large language models or chat GPT, it was probably computer generated content. Um, and it was just the speed and the odd hours. Um, so anyway, um, we were fortunate and able, we, we, we spun up massive instances of the cloud servers because we couldn't test for bots and we couldn't detect spam. I think we did more than a 30 time x increase in, in the number of servers. And the system, to its credit, stayed up 99.4% of the time. Uh, but the chairman's office said, you know, is this equivalent to denial of service? Uh, I looked at my team and they said, that's above our pay grade. And, and, and I thought about it. I said, well, at the application layer, this is essentially trying to tie up the application so that actual humans cannot leave a comment. And so we said that. Um, but what I didn't know at the time, what, and it was only found out about four years later in 2021 when the New York Attorney General had looked at. All the comments we had gotten. We got more than 2.3 million comments in less than two weeks, which again, remember, in 2014, that took 120 days to occur. We ended up with 23 million comments over 120 days, so 10x what we saw in 2014. And the New York Attorney General's uh, office discovered that 18 million of the 23 million comments were probably less than authentic. Surprise. But what they also found was that 9 million came from one side of the political aisle, 9 million from the other side of the political aisle, one side had hired uh, six different companies, um, at least to, to fill them. The other side of political aisle had engaged teenagers to do the same thing. And again, you know, this is something that I think public service needs to think about, which is what are our procedures and practices, especially in an era nowadays that, you know, as your listeners know, we're talking about chat GPT-3 and now GPT-4. We're talking about bots. I mean, they can look very human. And what are we going to do when there is a high-profile public commenting proceeding in which... You know now you see not just twenty three million comments that are each five or six lines each, but now you see twenty three million comments or more that are a hundred or a thousand pages long legalese. What if the budget of an agency is exceeded by the time and the resources necessary to review the comments?
0: And, and I have to mention here, you were able to do that because you were the right person in the right place that you were able to do that because you were the. Uh... Uh, the CIO of the yes, federal communications commission exactly. i was i was i, was both I, I, the I lucky all the person things and i left the that went out yeah, you just happened <laughs> to be the uh uh chair of the fcc uh, cio for almost 5 years thereabouts mm-hmm. so it reminds me of another experiment that should have been a bellwether and that was earlier than that experience, experiment perhaps at the same time um I guess it was under the Obama administration with the best of intentions, they came up with something called We the People. Do you remember that? I do remember there that. There was yeah. a, a great uh, opportunity to digitize kind of uh, the petition process, the old days, the co- colonial days and beyond. Mm-hmm. You, you'd you still get signatures and you would have something that would cause government to act on something or at least be make a, a position known. And We the People was pretty cool. Everyone was saying, oh, this is so cool. And if I recall correctly, the first... Real mass issue um, that got the most attention was uh, a move to legalize marijuana, which embarrassed everybody. <laughs> everybody, and so what they said, okay, we're going to increase the threshold. So they increased the threshold, whatever it was, you know, a hundred thousand. And that's because Howard Stern got everybody involved in all these select organizations. Took advantage of this opportunity. It was anything but democratic. It was right. very focused. Um, so they raised it up to like a million. And the second biggest thing was, believe it or not, was to export Justin Bieber back to Canada. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yep. It, it, you know. So it, it, again, we have this massive, massive problem. And here we can smile with the comments having to do with public policy. That's far more serious. Mm-hmm. So then the question is. The first step, of course, is to identify the problem, and you've done an an amazing job with doing that. And we can dissect the problem, but the harder thing is Mm -hmm. how do we solve it when the word fake has become so popularized and justified? We now know that there could be somebody with my voice out there and and people would not be sure if it's really me or you for that matter. We have people that can, as you were mentioning, can generate images that look exactly like us, sound like us, that could lead to war that could lead to social unrest and riots. Any thoughts on that? And that's the harder part.
1: That is a harder part. And I think the the answer will actually require two non-technical solutions in my opinion. The first is, so we go back to the public commenting process, it's rooted in the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946. Nowhere did it actually say it cared who the person was. It only evaluated on the legal argument And so that has consequences, though, because people are saying, you know, what if someone is, in fact, what happened in 2017, forces unknown filed comments for some high profile journalists that took one side, but they filed comments with the exact opposite side of the journalist. And then either the journalists were alerted or somehow they found out. And of course, they were outraged that someone had filed a comment um, that was opposite to their position. Now, unfortunately, the Administrative Procedure Act, it's not a vote. It really is just about evaluating legal arguments, but that had created already an issue of fakeness and and concerns about who had done that. And the trouble is again, nothing in the Administrative Procedure Act asks you to verify one, who you are, or two, that you're not a, a third party, whether you're an actual human submitting third party comments or a bot. And so I think we're going to have to update our laws And that's going to be a challenging process, given that Congress is already polarized and given that apparently this this sort of misinformation, disinformation, this sort of perception of things seems to be politically advantageous. But we're going to have to figure out how do we update the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946 for the current era? And this is not in some respects, we've seen this coming. It used to be postcards would flood agencies, then it was later mimeographs when you had those blue mimeographs, and then it was faxes. And so this is just the acceleration of what technology has done. We just have to update the law. The second thing is, as you said, it's the death of expertise. And while we technically have auditors, we have inspector generals. They can't really be experts in everything. And the way that we have solved this in other fields like medicine um, is that if a doctor, if there's a concern whether or not a doctor did the right thing, you have other doctors independently evaluate what was done about a patient. And so I think we need to have in government a nonpartisan professional cadre that could actually evaluate how things are going and say, did you make a good judgment call or not? Because the trouble is um, in the case that I had, you know, the auditors, when they came in, one, they never asked me what I saw, thought, or did, which seemed to be a noticeable absence. But then two, they only looked at the network layer when in fact this was clearly at the application layer. And so anybody who had read the report would say, well, you're looking at the wrong spot. You're looking at the network layer, not at the application. You're not even looking at the content of the comments to see that they're spam. And, and so I, I think we're going to have to figure out, you know, one way you can have public trust is if you have a professional society that requires knowledge of experience in and an ethical oath to do something more than just self-interest and that that ethical professional society reviews members and removes members if any one of those cases either they do something that demonstrates gross incompetence or they demonstrate something that violates their ethical oath if that professional society takes that responsibility because the public won't know enough to be able to do that Um, that may be one way to have trust And, and i think about what we have with data science right now in ai I don't see any certified professional ethical data science degrees out there when in fact we probably need them.
0: That's a good point or at least certifications. Yes, exactly. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of certifications. 100%, of make it
1: simple. It doesn't need to be yeah. too robust, but yeah. almost like how we have, you know, we have CISSP for security professionals, what's the equivalent for data?
0: Yeah. So let me switch gears a little bit because when I look at the things that you're involved in, you have a very strong global perspective. It's not just domestic and most of our conversation, although it has overtures for the rest of the world. At the Stimson Center where you're a distinguished fellow, you deal or focus on uh, the relationship between data and tech and its relationship to global impacts on communities. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, so I
1: was fortunate enough Right before COVID, I was speaking at a summit in Vietnam of CEOs. I got a phone call initially from the Atlantic Council before I went to Stimson. And they said, Would you like to lead a nonpartisan commission that's going to look at what the United States and our allies should do when it comes to cybersecurity, supply chains, uh, data and AI, bio and space? And, And of course, I said yes. And so we went into fundraising mode and we literally launched the same day, March the 11th, 2020, that COVID was declared a pandemic. And despite everything that happened in 2020 and 2021, we managed to actually get bipartisan consensus, both from the House and the Senate in terms of our representatives and our senators, um, but also from the industry commissioners that were there on those issues. And it was hand-delivered to the president in May of 2021, as well as the Speaker of the House. And about 50% of our recommendations have been implemented. Uh, I then transitioned from the Atlantic Council to the Stimson Center. Simpson Center is interesting because I say, if you ever wonder who the fictional character MacGyver possibly worked for in the 80s, I think he worked for the Simpson Center because it, it is a it is a can-do think tank. So it doesn't write papers per se. They actually put into practice whatever they recommend. Uh, they were looking at, for example, how to improve border collaborations in Africa. And they actually bought a rhino sanctuary to put in practice their recommendations to see if it worked. And, and I think we're now at a place where both the private sector and government have become risk averse to tackling the really hairball thorny issues. Um, I think we, we've, we've almost become where it's really fashionable to observe hairball issues, but not to tackle them. Because if you're an in industry, you're not gonna see immediate returns. You're possibly gonna fail. You're gonna have disinformation attacks. You know, you're gonna, it's gonna get messy. You're gonna get blamed for things. So why would industry ever tackle that? Same thing in government. Why would a political official or why would even a nonpartisan tackle that because it's gonna get messy? Plus the term of a political might be either two to four years at most. And this is probably six to 10 years of hairball. And so we have these messy hairball issues that nobody's tackling and they're only getting bigger and more numerous. And so I think we need to have more operationally oriented nonprofits that get some approval, whether it's from a national government or a group of national governments or even the international stage with the UN. To tackle these messy issues and to to show that it's possible. And, it, and to me, success is you not only show it's possible, but then a government or an industry player says, I want more of that. And then they take credit for it. And so I, I sort of work behind the scenes um, tackling really messy issues. And I remind people that failure is actually an acronym. They just didn't tell you. Fail is actually first attempt at iterative learning. You're going to have a second, third, and fourth attempt. But if we don't tackle these things to begin with, those hairballs are not going to go away.
0: So I should probably join the Simpson Center because uh, I'm a former Navy Seabee and our motto always was can do. And, Excellent. Uh, there you go. I, exactly. I have, right in the I do have that spirit. <laughs> so how do you remain, uh, you know, in the time I've known you, you always seem hopeful. You always seem optimistic. What keeps that fire burning within you? I guess it's partly the long view that, that things have always
1: seemed problematic. You know, there's the Charles Dickens quote, which is, it was the best of time, it was the worst of times. You know, it was the age of darkness, it was the age of, you know, right. It, it, we, we, we always think that we're somehow at the penultimate stage of society. And so I don't buy into the hype, but I also don't buy into things are awful. But then too, in some respects, when things get messy enough, that's when the clarity of we've got to do something about it happens you know when things are okay enough you have the innovator's dilemma which is don't mess with the status quo don't mess with it so you know if you look at my career why does he run to places that are on fire it's not that i'm an ambulance chaser it's just that those are the places that need you and you can put your talents at work and it's it's not it's not political anymore or or it can be political but it's less so um and so uh you know i am always hopeful partly because you know Crises can create the conditions necessary for change. And then two, imagine you were in England in 1939. You know, (laughs) it's not this. (laughs) So, you know, it's we will get through this. We will have to figure it out. Um, But I think uh, it's optimists who help have the audacity to think they can help improve conditions and change the world.
0: I fully agree. And this is probably a good place to end our conversation. It's like, is a glass half empty or half full? Mm-hmm. You know, we now know the world is not flat. It's round. We yes. know we're very much interconnected and I really appreciate the long view because that does give us hope. If we look at only today's headlines, yeah. we're doomed, right. <laughs> you know, and I know we're not. So.
1: No, we're not. And the good news is there's 8 billion people on the planet. Um. So, so anyway, for, for me and I'll just end with, I mean, I do think what we need to figure out is how do we reward whether you come from industry, whether you're a staffer on the hill, whether you're in the executive branch as a nonpartisan, how can we bring these different perspectives together? Because a diversity of perspectives are necessary to solve these problems. And unless we create safe spaces to tackle the hairball issues, no one else is gonna do it. So, So we really need to find those places.
0: I appreciate it, David. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. Uh, It has been a pleasure, and hopefully we can have you back and kind of catch up on some of the newer things happening perhaps uh, later on this year. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. You've been listening to David Bray, who is one of the more brilliant thought leaders that I have encountered in a very, very long time, former FCC CIO, uh, he's been a fellow, distinguished fellow uh, in the Atlantic Council, uh, the Simpson Center. He's taken a very bi- bipartisan approach, uh, and it was really a pleasure. So, with that, um, please uh, subscribe to Shark Bites and sharkbites.net. Until next time, remember to keep yourself safe, both personally and digitally.